The whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shiner and settled there. They said to each other, come let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone, tar for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down and to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Thank you so much, Monroe. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Uh, let's start with prayer. Lord God, you're a good God. You are a God uh, who, as Genesis says, in the beginning you had a plan. Lord, as we explore this series of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, I pray that you encourage us and draw us closer to who you are and the truth of Scripture. Lord, we say this all in your Son's precious name. Amen. Again, guys, we are in a new series that I am really excited about. We're going to be going through the first five books of the Bible, which is more commonly referred to as either the Pentateuch, which literally means five books, or the Torah. And the Torah was the original story that God gave to the Jewish people, the people of Israel, to understand who they were. It has some of the most exciting stories of Scripture. This has got Noah's Ark. This has got the Tower of Babel, which Monroe just read to us. It's got the creation story. It's got the Exodus and the Passover story. It's got Jericho. Well, not Jericho yet. That's in Joshua. One more book. But it's got these almost larger-than-life stories of how God rescued and saved his people. And yet, at the same time, it's some of the most misunderstood parts of the Bible. And one of the reasons why it's misunderstood is something that we as Christians, we especially as American Christians, have gotten used to. Where when we talk about our Bible, whether it's on our phone or that massive Bible that Monroe had, I love big Bibles like that, right? And sometimes we open them up and we start from a place of, all right, God, what do you want to say to me today? And we put ourselves at the center of God's story. And then we try to apply scripture to wherever we are in life. The reality, though, is if you want to understand scripture and its fullness of what God wants to do, there's a step that happens before hermeneutics. Hermeneutics says, how does this apply to my life? Before we get to hermeneutics, though, what you've got to do is something called exegesis. And exegesis is essentially saying, before I apply this to myself, I have to figure out who is the original intended audience and what were they supposed to hear. Because if we really believe that the Bible is the authoritative, true word of God, then what that means is it's always been authoritative. That truth has always been the same, which means it's not, it's not directly related to this moment in time. It starts with the original audience and what God was originally trying to communicate. And once we understand what that truth was, what God was trying to say to that people, what he was trying to teach them, then we can start to unpack what we call hermeneutics is, okay, how does that truth then 
apply to my life. And we don't just do this with Genesis. We're supposed to do this with the entire Bible. And so when we're looking at the parables of Jesus, the best way to do that is to first understand, okay, what did he mean at that time? What are the principles? What are the foundations? What's the truth that he was telling them? And then how does that truth change me? How does it apply to where God has me here, right? And so when you hear Jesus talking about um, a really good example would be when Jesus tells people, if a Roman centurion tells, some, tells you to carry their cloak for a mile, do it for two. Now, we don't carry people's cloaks anymore, right? That wasn't something that happened. But what that was in that place in that time was there was a law that said if you saw a soldier, that soldier could say, you have to carry my gear for one mile. And the Israelites did not like this. This was not an enjoyable experience for them, but it was the law of the land. It was the Roman oppressive law. And Jesus says, hey, if, if you want to be a follower of me, go the extra distance. Don't do it for one mile. Do it for two miles. Show the extent of love for people. Go the extra mile, even when you don't want to do it, because it's going to reflect me. That was the exegesis. The intended audience was the Jewish people. And the truth was, go the extra mile in love for folks. Once you do that, then we can do hermeneutics. Oh, what does that mean for my life? Well, it means when God presents opportunities for me to serve, even when I don't want to, even when it's hard, even when I don't think it's right, that I'm still supposed to go the extra mile in service and love to them. Exegesis leads to good hermeneutics. So let's talk about the original audience of the Torah. The first five books of the Bible was written to the Jewish Israelite people, a brand new community that had just come out of slavery and exile in Egypt. For 400 years, these people were oppressed, they were mistreated, they were abused. And they kept calling out to this God of their ancestors, asking the question, are, are you still there? Are you still with us? Do you still care about us? And God had rescued them through the plagues of Egypt. He had brought them into the land that he had promised them. And then he has Moses write these first five books of the Bible so they would know the full story of who their God is. And just as important, their descendants would know the story of who their God is. And in that part, we actually are part of the intended audience. We are descendants of the nation of Israel. Jesus is the fullness of what God was going to do in them. But that was the original intended purpose. Then gets us to understanding that God's story didn't just happen when he brought them out of slavery. God's story started way, way beyond that. In fact, it started as Genesis begins in the beginning. In fact, Genesis, the, the, the label of that book, literally means in the beginning, God had a plan. In the beginning, God was creating. In the beginning, God was moving. And so the first five books of the Bible unpack the purpose of who God is, what went wrong, which is what we're going to see today, and God's ultimate plan that he was still going to redeem and fix a broken world. And this is good truth. This is powerful truth. This is needed truth because it's really clear we still live in a broken world. 
with broken thinking and broken people. So we're going to unpack that. But before we do, dive into Genesis chapters 1 through 11. I, I want to take a little aside, because often this section of Scripture, in fact, lots of sections of Scripture, get misused or where we focus on the wrong point. A little bit of history here. Uh, the church has had a spotty track record with how we use and find truth in the Bible. And secular culture has a really spotty record with how the Bible finds truth in history. Uh, two examples would be, most of you probably know the name Galileo, right? In the 15th and the 16th century, he was an uh, astronomer, uh, scientist, and engineer, brilliant. And he came out and he was studying the stars, and he was one of the first people who said, hey, the earth revolves around the sun. But the, the Roman Christian Catholic Church at that time said counterpoint because they had interpreted the Bible to say, no, that the earth was the center of the universe. And the universe revolved around us. And this got into such a big fight that during the Catholic Roman Inquisition, they forced Galileo to repent, to recant. And then they kept him in his house for the rest of his life as punishment. Of course, now we know that the earth does, in fact, revolve around the sun, and the sun isn't even the center of the universe. But flash forward 300 years from there, and now you have the secular historians reading the Bible, and they're trying to find biblical artifacts, and they're reading Luke. And they're looking at all the evidence in Luke and all the very specific nuances of where statues were and where cities were. And then they started to laugh at Luke. And they said, there's no way anyone would be able to write a history this good. And so they said that Luke didn't really happen the way it happened. The places in Luke didn't really happen. But then something started to happen. They started to dig. And what they found was that Luke was an excellent historian. That if Luke told you that there was a statue 50 paces away, guess what you'd find? A statue 50 paces away. Now, now, why do I bring up these two stories? Because when we talk about Genesis 1 especially, and the creation story, there has been a debate raging for the last few decades. And the debate is about whether or not God creates the world in six days or six billion years. And oh my gosh, if you want to see people fiery, ask that question. The problem with that question is it's not doing proper exegesis. You see, exegesis makes us ask, who was the original intended audience and what did they need to hear? And in that, we see it's ancient Jewish people and God's plan for them and God's plan for the world. Do you know what question they were not asking? How many days did it take to create the world? They, they didn't have science. They didn't need that. They were literally surviving day by day. It was an ancient culture. It, was it is adventures in missing the point. The point of Genesis 1 wasn't how many days it took to create the world. The point of Genesis 1 was one God created the world. And this was not normal. If you look at ancient religions, 
They all had a pantheon of gods, and their gods competed with other gods of other nations. And if your country was doing well, it meant your gods were stronger that day. But here comes this little group of exiles. Tiny little nation with no power. And they come up with there is one God, and the rest are just figments of our imagination? Even secular historians will tell you this is a quote-unquote evolutionary leap in how cultures understood God, that there was just one God, which today is the main way most religions view God. Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, well, not Buddhists, uh, uh, but most religions, right, believe in one God. So, so here's, here's my TED Talk for today. If God is really God, God can create the world in six days. He's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. If God is really God, he can create the world in six billion years, navigating every single atom to see his plan come into existence. If God is really God, he can do whatever he wants to. But that is not the point of Genesis 1. The point of Genesis 1 is there is one God who created the world to be good. And he cares about it. And he cares about you. And he cares about your kids. And he cares about this world. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Let's continue on. All right. So Genesis, uh, chapters 1 through 11, show God's plan for creation and humanity's rebellious ability to break that plan. And we're going to see that over and over and over again. But Genesis 1:31 says this, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Again, the truth of Genesis 1 is that God created the world to be good. And he created every aspect of it, not just humanity plants and the birds and the animals. God created the world to be a good place. And then he gives it to us as his stewards to caretake and to shepherd and to watch over. It's awesome. Right? Creation starts and we are living in harmony with God and his will. We're in sync with him. And when we're in sync with God, we naturally get to experience the benefits of what that looks like. Understanding what he is calling us to do comes naturally to us. It's good. But then something goes wrong. Genesis 3 enters the story. And the Lord said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Right? This is the story of us eating the apple. Of us choosing our own will over God's will. Male and female, we both do it. Sin enters into the story. All of a sudden, a chord that isn't in harmony with God enters into the song. 
and everything literally goes to hell. Hell's very definition is separation from God. And so God is looking at the garden, and then you have this story of not eating from the tree of eternal life. Why is that so important? Because if we're not in harmony with God now, and we eat from the tree of eternal life, we're never going to be in harmony with God. We can't be. And if we can't be, then we're always going to be separated from him. And if we're always separated from him, we are going to just be living for eternity on this wheel of chaos and hurt and pain because humanity's sin condition continues to spread. And so if Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 shows us that God creates the world, it's meant to be good, and he has a plan for us, Genesis 3 through Genesis 11 shows us how humanity falls and the extent of the problem. And over and over and over again, as we explore Genesis, you see the extent of the problem. Genesis 4 comes in, and all of a sudden you have... All right, one more. Boom. Uh, Genesis 4 comes in, and Cain kills his brother Abel. These are literally the first kids of Adam and Eve. I know the, the joke in my family is we put the fun in dysfunctional. This is a dysfunctional family. One generation in to the fall, and you already have a brother killing another brother out of jealousy. Abel brings an offering that is pleasing to God. It's of his first fruits. It's the best he has. And God sees Abel, and he goes, hey, good job. And Cain sees it, and he turns around, and he says, no, 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 I'm not having that. First relationship, first sibling relationship ends with murder. And you would think that's the worst it's going to get, but no. This comes from Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and every incarnation of thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. You would think Cain killing Abel. No, 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 no. It just gets worse. Our, our brains are literally hardwired to be out of sync. Only evil all the time. Genesis 6 through Genesis 10 reminds us that sin is a progressive disease, it, it never stops. Sometimes we can think, well, it's just this far, and I've got it under control. You will never have sin under control. I will never have sin under control. It's like an addiction. We may carve out a space and say, okay, it's just this. But it just keeps taking more ground. It keeps clawing at us, taking from us. That's all sin knows how to do. Just destroys relationships, severs them, and separates them farther and farther and farther apart. Us from God? Us from our family and our friends and our neighbors? 
us from the world. Ultimately, it'll separate you from God, or you from yourself. You'll be split. Sin is a progressive disease, and it's going to take very drastic measures for it to be solved. So God keeps on showing different methods that he could solve it, right? With Cain and Abel, he separates Cain. He says, okay, now you're going to get marked. Noah and the flood. We finally get to the story of Babel, where Monroe read earlier. This is humanity talking. Then they said collectively, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered across the whole earth that we can make a name for ourselves. It's all about us. It's not just about us. It's about us taking God's place, and that always ends one way. When we stop letting God be God and us be creations but instead say, no, we want to be the chief creator. That is the very definition of sin. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? We wanted to be like God. We weren't content with what he had given us. We wanted more. More power, more authority, more control. And whenever we want more power, more authority, more control than what God has given us, we start to abuse that power. That authority actually becomes abusive to us and we can't realize it, we can't see it, we can't stop it. So he scatters them. Another temporary fix but it was always going to be a temporary fix because the problem wasn't external. You see, sometimes we think if we can just change the externals, we'll finally be okay on the inside. Have you ever felt that way? I, I just need a new job, and then everything will be all right. Just need a new house, a new significant other, a new ex. If this external is fixed, I'll be okay. But we don't have an external problem. We have an internal problem. Everywhere we go, there we are. And so God needed to find an internal way to fix an internal problem. And that is the truth that helps us get to understand why Jesus was God's solution to a broken world. Because Jesus had the power to create a new heart, a new life inside of us. A new creation is how Paul calls the church. That the old is gone, the new has come, and from that newness, from that internal spirit, we can go back to Genesis 1 and 2, where we are in sync with God, where we can hear him where we naturally follow him, where we get into the rhythm of who he is and what he's doing. So the good news of Genesis 1 through 11 is that, yes, there is a real problem with the world. There's a real problem with you. There's a real problem with me. But we know what the problem is. 
And more importantly, God knows what the problem is. And he had a plan to fix it. He has a plan for your life. He has a plan to help live out of that new identity that you don't have to go back to the brokenness, back to the hurt, but instead are able to experience Genesis 1, 31. And God saw that all he had made in your life. And it was very good. Proper exegesis brings us to proper hermeneutics and application. I'm excited about this series because we get to see the foundation of our faith. Genesis 1 through 11 teaches us the beginning and the problem. Genesis 12 through Genesis 50 starts to show us the solution. He creates a new people called Israel. And he names them Israel, those who wrestle with God, which gives us confidence that even when we're still wrestling with that old identity and that brokenness, that he is still moving, he is still fighting for us. Amen. I ask you guys to pray with me. Tanner, I'm going to ask you to come up, and we're going to continue our worship. Heavenly Father, Lord, on reflection of Genesis 1 through 11, it's easy to see where our own stories have gotten into that same mentality of we can be like you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you open our eyes to the sin, to the brokenness, to the areas where we are still trying to be in control, where we are still trying to have authority that's not ours to have but yours. Lord, we confess to you that we're still wrestling with our sinful nature, an internal problem. But Lord, we are bold to confess because you are a God who specializes in internal problems. And through Christ, our sins are forgiven. You remember them no more. Not only that, but you create a new creation in the image of Genesis 1 that allows us to reflect you and allows us to hear you say over our lives, it is very good. Lord, help us to live out of that new identity this week. Lord, we say this all in our son's precious name. Amen. And we go into a time of worship to help reflect as we head towards communion.